Welcome to SpotCast, your single point of contact for the service management and support industry, brought to you by HDI, where service management and support professionals belong. I'm your host for SpotCast, Roy Atkinson. Episode 7 is a conversation with Simone Joe Moore. Simone is a service management mixologist who probes the hearts and minds of what makes businesses and IT tick, jumpstarting people's thinking to evolve behavior and actions at any level. She is a senior consultant, master trainer, course author, podcast co-host, and framework mentor on ITIL, DevOps, Agile, Verism, KCS, Sophia, and others. Simone combines these skills with a background in HR to create and share deep leadership experience with her clients at global conferences and across social media. She'll be conducting a one-day workshop at the 2019 HDI conference and expo titled The Foundations of Relationship Agility. Simone, one of your favorite terms is VUCA, V-U-C-A. And for those who don't know what that means, can you explain it a little bit? And how is it different from FUD, F-U-D? Well, VUCA is... uh an old term, old military term actually, and it is really describing the kind of context or the environment in which, you know, we operate in. And VUCA itself is a mnemonic and it stands for volatility, first of all, uh, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity. Um, I guess it's the extension of FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, I think what the thing is that uh, the VUCA matrix that we use to help put things into context, the one thing that it doesn't really talk about is the emotional side, which FUD does have, the fear. Uh, But that we can talk about a bit later. But I love VUCA. It's a great tool it really is a you know thinking tool uh a tool to help you understand what's going on in your environment let's face it being smart it's not the same thing as being clever uh we can't afford to drop our brains when we come into difficult environments uh but when we do occasionally (laughs) drop our brains and have an emotional hijack you'd be surprised at how creative the heart and mind actually can be to survive and that's what normally happens in a VUCA environment so volatility if we think about it in all the change that's going on in our world volatility is about the rate of change so whether that's um it can be quite minor it can be quite slow or it could be volcanic, if you want to think about V as volcanic. So it can be quite fast, hard and sharp, uh, and in some cases quite destructive or disruptive, if you want to think of it that way. Uncertainty is about being unclear about the present, what's happening in the moment. Uh, not sure of what's going on around us. You might only have bits and pieces of information, but there's not a lot that's going to give you any concrete understanding. Complexity, well, it just means there's multiple key decision factors. Uh, those can be coming from all sorts of environments. There could be internal issues that you have, could be external issues. It, it's called complex for a reason. Um, <laughs> and the ambiguity is having lack of clarity about the meaning uh, of an event, uh, lack of clarity about the focus, lack of clarity on the goal or the objective. So, I, in, a, in a nutshell, that's VUCA. 
which one of those do you think has the most emotional impact? I mean, we, we, you know, you talked about FUD having the emotional component of fear in there, but obviously we, we react emotionally to volatility, to uncertainty, to complexity, probably less to complexity. Ambiguity sometimes is paralyzing. How do we respond to each one of those things, do you think? Well, there's a whole host of emotions that will go underneath that. Um, people, you know, based on their experience and their knowledge and what skill sets and techniques they have to hand will uh, respond differently in each of those cases. Uh, you know, if we were to say, for example, in volatility, in terms of a person, it could mean, you know, anger, but there's all sorts of anger. There's different types of anger. Uh, there's mild irritation all the way to absolute rage. So in a volatile situation, uh, we may respond with anger as a form of uh, defence. We also may respond with fear, which again has all levels, different types of fear uh, that might come into play. So I think it's one of those things that you could talk for an awfully long time with a particular group of people and say, well, what does volatility mean to you? How do you respond to that? Uh, and people will take it in different ways. It's certainly an interesting, it, it's just that it's not as clear as in FUD. Fear, you know, it just says, right, fear is what we have in FUD. Uh, and fear is what people are needing to deal with, but fear can be responded to in a number of different ways. So I think that one of the characteristics that people who tend to do fairly well in volatile or uncertain or complex situations, emergencies, etc., cetera, uh, would be resilience. And can, yes. So can you can you talk about resilience? And when we've talked previously, you, you mentioned resilience and resistance. Can you talk about those two things and, and where they fit together or don't? And, and it, not only in terms of individuals, but also in terms of organizations. Mm. I think uh, one of the key things in a VUCA context uh, is understanding that, you know, in, in this changing world, um, you have to be continuously ready. I think that's a really interesting thing. Uh, like the Coast Guard has their motto of being always ready uh, to meet whatever challenge they have. And an interesting aspect of the way the Coast Guard has gone about, I guess, designing their service or designing their business focus is really working it backwards. So they, they, their customers are very visible, their customers' needs are very clear, and if the Coast Guard fails in its service, we know lives can be lost. So they work out, they uh, from that visibility and the need of the customer, they then work backwards to develop their services. And in a true sense, what they're doing, that's the essence of what's happening in our digital environment now, where uh, it's not just about the technology to automate core services, but they completely have that shift of power to their customer and they need to continually adapt their technologies and processes and cultures around the customer's ever-changing environments. The resilience actually comes into being where, I guess, their ecosystem of what they work in, it remains relatively unchanged when it's confronted by a disturbance, whether it's a storm or uh, some kind of... Uh, cataclysmic event even if you want to take it to the extreme side of things that 
they have a level of resistance. They're not really needing to have any uh, reorganisation. They're going to move with it but come back to a sense of stasis or a, uh, a sense of equilibrium where they're not really unchanged. However, with resilience, you do have to end up internally reorganising. Uh, you do. It implies that you need to go through a mosaic of patches at different stages of reassembling yourself after being through these events. And that's pretty much what business is going through with digital transformation. If we think about, you know, the visibility of the customer and their specific needs and how those needs are now changing in this VUCA environment, how resilient do we need to be versus resistant? I don't think there's anything wrong with resistance if we are protecting something that needs to stay the same. But if it doesn't need to stay the same, then we need to look to building the resilience in order to internally reorganise ourselves to come to a new state of equilibrium. That's more or less how I see that difference between resilience and resistance. The, the birch tree that bends to the ground with the weight of ice on it and then springs back when the ice melts versus the lighthouse getting smashed by the waves, which is resistant uh, to that. that it's a very interesting uh, dichotomy there. We still need them both to act in that way, but you can see that we can have both resistance and resilience within that VUCA context. And when you were talking about that, you, you mentioned the Coast Guard thinking from the customer backwards, which is really something that Steve Jobs said as well. You start with the customer and think backwards to the technology. So you try to understand what they want. And in Steve Jobs' mind, it was what they would want, or what they will want and work backwards to develop the technology. That's, that's a really outside-in way of, of looking at, at business and, and our world and, and technology. Very cool. Absolutely. So speaking of our world of technology and uncertainty and doubt, um, ITIL 4 is coming <laughs> soon, and Verism is, mm-hmm. is garnering an audience, and DevOps continues to grow, mm-hmm. and... Cobit is coming out with a new version, and there are all of these frameworks and methodologies out there. Are there too many, and do we have to choose? I don't think there's. <laughs> I think there's always going to be too many. Um, it's like walking into a lolly shop, isn't it? Really, for someone that really enjoys service management, looking at going. Oh, which flavor shall I have this month or in the next six months? Or I don't like the taste of that anymore. Can I try something else, please? Um, For me, it's really not that we have too many. I think it's the misunderstanding how they can work together uh, and what what it is that you really want. I like to actually bring it back to the art of mixology. Uh, If any uh, hospitality people out there, they'll know that a good mixologist is the supremo bar person. Um, But before you can actually make your perfect margarita, you first need to know what you want to drink. Uh, You might not even want a margarita. That's usually my go-to. It's interesting when I travel around, the reason I have this analogy of being a mixologist when it comes to the frameworks is that... um, the journey of finding the perfect margarita now it's a very simple cocktail it's made of very very simple ingredients 
And if you watch how it's being made, that's one aspect of seeing it. But the actual taste of it is another thing. It has to be a perfect balance. And that's what people are looking for with these frameworks. They're trying to find what it is that's going to balance their outcome what's going to balance the return on investment, what's going to balance the um, people against the process, against the technology, how are we going to find the right combination that works. Um, so besides first knowing what you want to actually drink, you then have to understand how you're going to mix these things together to find what you want. Neither of them replace the other. There are elements within all of them that you'll find are common and if we're to find the right one, we just don't want to be too heavy on one side and not heavy enough on another. It's a very delicate thing. And if each person will have the slightly different flavour. Some people will want a little bit more tequila and others will want a little bit more lime. <laughs> Some will need extra salt. Uh, <laughs> so we just have to decide yeah. if I till is the salt or the... Never mind. <laughs> I guess a question arising out of that is how within an organisation... Does it get decided what parts of particular frameworks are going to be adopted? How do we do this? I mean, is, is this something that the service management office, if there is one, should be looking at and thinking about, oh, we can, get, we can learn this from COBIT and we, we should audit our systems this way. We can take this from ITIL and make sure that we have these processes in place and we're doing them this way. Uh, is, is that some, does there need to be a team that, that assesses the adoption of frameworks, do you think? I think you've, the word you used was team. Uh, that's an important aspect. Uh, but who makes up that team is the key question here. I think that when you think of something like a service management office, I've seen that different ways in organisations. I've seen it belong to the operational side of the IT arm of an organisation. I've seen it as a collaborative team with PMO, the project management office, which has actually sat outside of IT. Um, so I think we have to think about who would you put into a team that would look at frameworks? Now, the interesting facet, something like COBIT if we, or any of the governance-style frameworks, that is a business decision. In fact, all of these are a business decision. Their, their methods, techniques, approaches, ways of being, uh, they impact culture, process and technology. I think a core place where this decision belongs is to have a cross-functional team formed that involves uh, people from each part of the enterprise. Because one of the things that you've mentioned here, there are other business frameworks. You, you, we talk about Idle or Verism or DevOps or COBIT, they're still very IT focused, even though they talk a lot about the business. People naturally associate them with the IT side of things. Whereas what about all the HR techniques? What about all the financial techniques? What about all the sales and marketing techniques? These are things that need to come and work together uh, with the other ones that you've mentioned because they're all part of our capability in the organisation as a whole. We're very good at jumping into new technologies. You know, ask somebody who has worked in IT for any period of time, 
how do we solve this problem? And they'll say, oh, there's this cool app. <laughs> and <laughs> so we jump into new technologies before we even think about anything else. And, and you know, more power We're to us. We're in an appy society. We are in an appy society. <laughs> there certainly has been plenty of talk this year and recently about artificial intelligence, automation, bots of different flavors, chatbots, and so on. What from your perspective, is the human side of all this? How do we fit into this changing world, which is becoming increasingly technological, and how do we navigate through it? I've been doing a fair bit of research in this side of thing. I call it machine humanity, uh, looking at uh, AI, the EI, and what I call the H2H component or the human-to-human -human component. Um, if anyone watches a lot of these uh, movies, I really love sci-fi fantasy. So some of them can be a bit scary, like Ex Machina. Um, but there was a line in that that said, to, to erase the line between man and machine is to obscure the line between men and gods. And I found that rather fascinating because it really speaks to the premise behind many of these movies. How far are we actually willing to take AI? Um, humans are emotional but not always emotionally intelligent. Uh, so it is quite possible that we are limiting the technology that we're creating as much as the technology that we create may turn us into automatons and we can lose ourselves in what we create. Uh, so I think we really need to look uh, beyond IT when it comes to how we're working with this technology and what it might mean for us. Uh, part of that is I like to talk about uh, in classes, in workshops, I often will say to everyone, build me a sandcastle. And I know that for every single one of them, they will have a different picture of a sandcastle inside their heads. And for some, it'll just be, you know, the sand straight into the bucket, turn it upside down. For others, it will, they'll get some sticks and shells and add those to it and create something, uh, you know, draw bridges and a, a moat around it. Uh, for others, I remember in uh, Tahiti, a little boy, I was watching uh, his sandcastle. Uh, being French, he actually built a ruined chateau. <laughs> So, and then you have all these wonderful uh, sand art sculptures that you see in competitions now. So the whole point, I think, is when we think about what we want to build here is do we actually have the same picture in our mind? Are we actually doing it the way we want to do it? Uh, one of my favourite people in the world, Ivor McFarlane, uh, has uh, – area that he talks about which is innovation starts with disobedience <laughs> which is quite cool who said that a sandcastle had to look a particular way and so when he was playing around with his version of the Boston box he was looking at different ways of being better something that was kind of boundaryless uh, in terms of its behavior uh, when we think about doing new things or doing things in new ways I think many of us are still in that quicker faster cheaper greener, easier mode. Uh, some people are looking at doing the old things differently, which is good. We're trying to reassess how things are done. And others now are just looking to do things we couldn't manage before. And this is where the emerging technologies can be taking us going, wow, didn't even know that this was even possible. And then moving into their ultimate mode where it's like doing things you can't even imagine yet. So there's some pretty amazing stuff that 
uh, artificial intelligence can help us with, look at how it works in health, uh, the ability to uh, have chips inserted between the nervous system of the human and uh, the new robotic hand that's now their new hand because they lost their old one in some uh, trauma. So it, it can do some amazing things, but we have to understand if, you know, build me a hand, what's that going to be? Build me a new brain inside my, you know, server room. What's that computer brain going to be about? So the human side of it is really thinking about what are all the biases that we build in, what are the kind of techno ethics that we want to have a look at? Um, you know, are we doing this from a human-centered design basis? Uh, are we doing this from a human operations understanding? I mean, you know, humans build and fix systems. They get, you know, humans get tired and stressed. We feel happy and sad. Um, are we putting those things into system? Do we want those things into AI? So I think there's some very uh, potent questions uh, that are going on in the research. I think you touched on a number of areas there that I also find very interesting. And one of them is just looking at what's called the missing middle between the things that artificial intelligence is really good at and things that humans are really good at. And, you know, characteristics like empathy and leadership, we immediately associate them as human characteristics data absorption and analytics. Okay, that's where the artificial intelligence is really good. Someplace in the middle, there's kind of a blend. And as a trainer and a trainer of trainers, when you look at how training is going to be in the future and the skills that are going to be required uh, in the future, that seems to be a very interesting space. And how do you feel that we're, we're going to have to start to step up here? Uh, to learn the skills that we're going to need to inhabit this world that we're building. And how, how do you see us approaching that as, as trainers and teachers? I think, first of all, we have to understand who we are as the trainer or teachers when it comes to uh, assisting our people with the skill sets as well. I mean, digital technology is merely the catalyst um, you know, we're always looking to maintain our operational sustainability, um, but we want to be more agile in the organisation, in our strategy, um, yet, and we want to build a better culture, yet we want to make sure that we're able to stabilise it <laughs> at the same time. So this, um, I think we have to look at what is it that we're trying to do what is it that we see in terms of our people and the skills that they need? Um, AI was always seen to, oh, it's going to take people's jobs away, uh, which in fact more than anything is just changing the way in which we work. Uh, they talk about us being in the fourth industrial revolution. And in fact, there's a really good video from the World Economic Forum uh, on that. And what I found quite interesting when watching this video, which has a whole lot of different views, different people talking about it. Uh, some examples were uh, one last from a car manufacturing company. Her view was, but we sit there, we program something. And as humans, we come in and take the extra step to help the technology, which is the complete reverse of what we've been looking at, which is how does the technology help us do our job? So now we're talking about us helping the machines. 
then we have uh, someone else from the trade union side of things that's saying, well, how are we going to share the wealth? How are we going to define our work in the future? And you've got someone else that's from uh, university side of things that's saying, well, we need to create space that enables people to think freely. Uh, we need to give our access uh, to ourselves to be able to think of things that we didn't weren't even possible before. Then you've got someone more from uh, medical and health side that's saying, that, you know, we have the potential to make inequalities visible so that all these things about inequality can be less acceptable and we can take better decisions to reduce the gaps. So what I found fascinating, it's always about from the context of their role, the context of their skill sets. So I think we have to look at what are the different types of roles that are coming into AI in order to then understand, or I should say coming into the AI period that we're finding ourselves in. So we're now finding artificial intelligence trainers. We're also finding, because the amount of data that's required, uh, roles such as data detectives or data czars and strategists. We're now finding machine learning scientists uh, there are various uh, forums on AI uh, and thought leaders in those forums. We are having to look outside of our normal skill set now, outside of IT, into things like humanities and people with writer backgrounds that can help drive personalities and interactions because those interactions are important from a people perspective. You've got you know, people to process, people to technology and people to people. So you've got other roles like... <laughs> This is an interesting one I came across, a robot whisperer or a robo-psychologist. So someone that's able to bridge between human and AI learning and interaction. And strangely enough, there is even at Eindhoven University in the Netherlands, they have a multidisciplinary master program that applies knowledge from social science, uh, sciences to problems that are related to the introduction of new technologies. So you can go and do a master's program in that. So there's all sorts of interesting new roles out there that are then going to drive what are these skill sets. I think one of the biggest ones is still coming back to that human element is understanding the AI and EI um, interaction. Uh, you know, talent acquisition is transforming. Businesses are having to become a destination company from now on. Rather than us trying to source people, we're trying to now attract the talent in the other way in. You've got technology that's helping define the personality traits of a person, not just their specific skill sets. You've got uh, companies that are using uh, some of the AI technologies now to read people's micro expressions in an interview so that they're looking at a more whole person rather than just at what the skill set is on paper. So what skills are we going to train people for? Hmm, I think we have to then start establishing, well, how is the technology changing the roles or how are our roles changing the technology and the skills that we're going to need? Fascinating stuff, and we could talk about this for the next three or four days straight. I, I, I do want to say thank you very much for taking the time in, in your day in France to chat with me over here in South Carolina. And uh, I very much enjoy speaking with you, Simone, and I look forward to seeing you at our conference in 2019. My absolute pleasure. It's been a joy and such a fascinating thing to talk about. Thanks for listening to Spotcast, and we hope you're looking forward to future episodes. 
Meanwhile, send us a tweet with the hashtag SPOCCAST, SpotCast. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm your host, Roy Atkinson, reminding you to take care 